nonsense, uh, part two of what I was doing this morning, although obviously the content is going to be considerably different, but it does go very well, uh, does, the thoughts of it will go very well with what I was talking about this morning. I've been trying to do, on the order of about once a month, to every six weeks, I've been trying to take a song that we commonly sing. And I'm intentionally taking one we sing quite a bit. Sanctuary, obviously, is one of those we sing a lot. That has to do with our theme of being holy. And that particularly applies to some of the thoughts that we're looking at, in this case, this quarter, being holy in our weakness. So I want to look at that tonight. I'm not going to look at everything and every single lyric or anything, but I am going to choose thoughts from different parts of the song. If you've got an outline, you may notice that in this case, and I'm doing every one a little bit different, but in this case I chose to quote part of the song and, uh, and then single some things out and talk about it. So if we look at the song we just sang, O Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you. If we stop and reflect upon those lyrics, the Christian, if he or she is to be holy, The first thing that's got to happen is that we have to come to a realization that we are a vessel of God, a living sanctuary. And that's the way the Lord meant it to be. In the Old Testament, there was a structure. In most religions, in many parts of the world, there are temples, there are sanctuaries, there are buildings to either house God or to give devotion to God, whatever it might be. And so we might think of the various religions, no need to go off into that. But in Christianity, God chooses for each of us as a Christian to be a living, holy place, a living sanctuary. And if you notice what the song is saying, Lord, prepare me to fulfill that duty, to fulfill that responsibility. Make me pure and holy. A Christian has got to come to a realization that if he's going to be a living sanctuary, a living holy place, he's going to have to be prepared. And he's going to have to be perfected, as it were. He's going to have to be complete, be everything that God wants his dwelling place to be, so that he will be, as Tyler just read for us in Ephesians 2, a fit or a suitable, depending on whatever translation you have, but a suitable dwelling place of God. We know, and I'm not going to spend a great part of this lesson talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and that we are a holy uh, temple and all of that. I believe we understand that. I think we see that, that in Ephesians 2, as Tyler read, Paul is talking about Christians become the habitation, the home, the dwelling place of God. Um, In in Hebrews chapter 3, for example, in verse 6, Jesus is a son over his own house, and his own house is indeed a house of God, a dwelling place of God. We might look at some of the statements that are made in the books of of Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, what part has the temple of God? And that temple you are, as Paul said. Or if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, or again in chapter 6 and verse 19, we see, see Paul talking about, don't you know that you are the temple of God? You have the Holy Spirit, you are the temple of God. So if we look at all those verses and others we could look at, a number of others, we understand God is saying, you are my dwelling place. 
Once there was a building erected to me. Once there was a most holy place with an Ark of the Covenant, with you know, the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. Once there was that cloud of glory. Once the Holy Spirit, His presence was in that building. But you, personally, now, house God. You are the sanctuary. And so if we're looking at, and let's go to 2 Corinthians, and we've looked at this passage, I have emphasized it all year, different parts of it, but let's look at it again. In, in 2 Corinthians 6, again, verse 16, we can easily see that God is saying, um, you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them. So in chapter 7, verse 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves, Paul says, or purify ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. A lot of that we were talking about this morning. All those things that go on inside us, the wants, the desires that move us to doing various things. So we remove that. We cleanse ourselves of that. And then you'll notice he calls that perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Help me to accomplish that. I think a Christian takes the responsibility with God's help, and, and certainly it comes from God, but with God's help to cleanse ourselves, to make ourselves whole, to build ourselves, if you want to stay with the analogy of a temple, to build ourselves into the suitable, the fit dwelling place of God. If we go back, and I'd like for you to turn to Hebrews 9 for just a moment, and I'm not going to stay, get very deep into Hebrews 9. But if we were to look at the New Testament, and especially in the book of Hebrews, as the writer discusses the idea of the temple and the whole temple system, Jesus the high priest, and, and so forth and so on, we know that as we look back in the Old Testament, the temple was comprised of two, two compartments. There was the holy place, and there was the most holy place. Now, the holy place was the common part of it, if you will. It was the part where all the priests, would gather and they would, some of them had different duties, but those duties, without getting too specific about it, but those duties on a daily basis took place at the holy place. But every Jew understood there was an inner part of the temple, the most holy place. In the tabernacle, there was like a curtain that separated it, but it wasn't seen. In the temple, there was a veil, and we know that, literally a wall. And inside that most holy place, only the high priest went. No other Jew ever saw it in his generation. Only the high priest. And that high priest only went in there on, the, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to carry that sacrifice to the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkle it for the sins of the people, etc. So the most holy place becomes, in Hebrews 9, if you're looking at it, the writer is, is discussing this whole setup. And he will talk about the most holy place and how, notice verse 7, into the second, meaning the second compartment, went the high priest alone. Now, obviously, in this book, we understand very clearly that that's Jesus. Now, in today's terminology, that that's Jesus. And Jesus, of course, went into the most holy place, which is heaven, as high priest, carrying the sacrifice himself and placing that sacrifice, in a figurative sense, I believe, but on the altar of God. So when we make our appeal in prayer, for example, 
for forgiveness of sins, we could go back to chapter 4 and we could see from verses 14 through 16 there, we are appealing to God, but we are appealing through our high priest and we are confidently coming before God, appealing to him for forgiveness, but acknowledging the fact that there is our high priest with the perfect sacrifice that's been carried into heaven, etc. Well, in the analogy then, where does that leave us? And how is it that if, if Jesus is the high priest going into heaven with the sacrifice, all of that, then what is the point of our being the temple? Our, you, me, as individual Christians. Well, we are the holy place. And so as you begin to look at this, and you can see it, I believe, from Hebrews 9, even starting in verse 1. But the analogy would be we are priests. All Christians are priests. And all Christians do daily service in the holy place, as it were. All Christians offer spiritual sacrifices on a daily basis. And we become the priests serving at the temple. So the church, in a composite sense, which is made up of all individual Christians, is the sanctuary. So when we are singing this song, and I am singing this song, you are singing it, we are saying, Lord, prepare me. A temple had to be clean. And Wes had a sermon several weeks back where he talked about the meticulous, you know, all that blood. Remember that sermon? And the meticulous detail to cleansing all of that. And how it kept, I mean, on and on, repetitively, it had to be cleansed. Well, there's an application there. There is an example there. And that's for me. And so if I'm singing the song or I'm praying to God, prepare me, cleanse me. This is we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Cleanse me from all filthiness that I can be a fit, a suitable sanctuary to God. When we look at this song, O Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried, tested, and true, so that I will be everything you want me to be with thanksgiving then. You know, thanksgiving to God for what He's done. Thanksgiving to God for the fact that now I am cleansed. Thanksgiving that God has made me into something so much more, so special, so holy, beyond what I would have been without Him. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. But let's go further. Notice the part of the song that says, Lord, teach your children. When we first learned this song several years ago, and I had never heard it before, but we got these small books and different ones of you guys, especially those of you that went to camp and so forth, and you brought this song and we began to sing. And, and, and it became a favorite of many people here very quickly. It's a beautiful song. It's, it's well written. But I thought, first impression, first time we ever sang it, I thought, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. And then we jumped. I mean, immediately. <laughs> Lord, teach your children to stop the fighting. I thought, great lyrics. But whoa, wait a minute. You know? I mean... That's a, boy, that's a leap. And then I thought, no, no, not so much. Because think about it. Lord, teach your children to stop the fighting. Start uniting all as one. And I'm going to go to a passage that I was reminded of. And I think we can see exactly how these two ideas do not, not just are disjointed and forced together, but a beautiful sequence of thought. Whoever wrote this, and I don't remember the author's name, but man. What a job of writing lyrics. It's awesome. Lord, teach your children to stop the fight. Start uniting all as one. Let's get together, loving forever. Sanctuary. 
for you. And here's why. We talk about the Christian is the Christian is to be holy. We understand, and I didn't spend a lot of time on that part because I know we understand that. I've got to clean up my life. I've got to cleanse the holy place to be prepared to be the house of God. But the church as a whole, if it is to be holy, must strive for unity. Yes, you and I as individuals have to be Christians that are dedicated to perfecting the holiness within ourselves. But we don't live in a vacuum, and we don't operate in a vacuum. If we were stranded on a desert island, that would be one thing, but we're not. No, we're in a unit. And the unit, we are known as much for being part of a unit as we are as an individual. We are members of this Church of Christ. We are members here, and we are known as that. And we're a reflection of, what, of, of our whole philosophy, of everything we teach, everything we stand for. People judge it by us. And so the church, if it is to be holy, has to strive for unity. It's got to strive for love. If together, now not just the individual, but together, we are to be a fit sanctuary for the Lord. Let me back up and ask it in a simple way. You'll notice on your outline I put, what are we known for? At different times, people have made commentary on the Church of Christ. And I'm not talking about members of the church. If you read commentary from within the church, you get one commentary on the church. If you read commentary from without the church, you get a different commentary. Now that's sometimes... Maybe most of the time, because it's human writers, not fair, not totally, and we would say that. However, it does us good sometimes, in some fashion, whether you want to read a formal article that's been written about a church of Christ, or the church of Christ, or whether you just want to talk to your relatives, friends, and neighbors. What do you think about it? What, what was your impression? Maybe you invite somebody... Or maybe somebody wanders in here and you ask them that question. What did you think about our service? What did you think about our church? What, you know, what impression did you get of this place? And it's amazing sometimes the answers you get. Sometimes it's very negative. When you think everything is wonderful. <laughs> you know, it's great. And someone comes in and the commentary they give you, maybe they had a bad experience, maybe they didn't, maybe from biases or prejudices, you know, of preconceived ideas and so forth. But sometimes, you're just as shocked the other way. Maybe it is at a time when you are coming in here, and in particular, it's like we were talking about this morning. There's a lot of drama, and there's a lot of strife, and maybe when you're coming in here, your impression is, you know, this church could be a lot better. It's not as good as it needs to be. And the people here could be a lot better, and they're not as good. And someone walks in... And their impression is, man, this place is fantastic. What I'm getting at is this. If a church is to be holy, it's going to be known for something, and it needs to be known for what God wants. When you look at this verse, it is not Christianity is not just about, Lord, prepare me as an individual, separate and apart from all my brethren. Prepare me. Let me be the holy person that walks among this crowd of people that, at best, you know, they're not making it anyway. That's not Christianity. And when we look in the New Testament, we do see so much emphasis, so much focus on the individual because it becomes an individual responsibility of the priest within 
God's church within the temple of God to do His service and do it as God would have us do it. But, there is equally emphasis given to the church. The church at such and such a place. The group of Christians at such and such a place. The saints at Corinth or Ephesus or the churches of Galatia and so forth and so on. An emphasis given to the whole. So what are we known for? I've been in church for a long time, obviously. I grew up, you know, especially the time that from about five years old to 15 of going to two different denominational churches, but I was in church. And then I had my time when I wasn't in church and doing all the things that I tell you about sometimes. And then I began to study, and then I became a Christian about the time I left high school. And I've been a member of the church since that time. And I can tell you that what the church is known for all too often, and you know this is the case, is for all the fighting. It has been said, Wes and I come from a county that really is like almost nothing on the face of the earth. There aren't that many people, nothing. In fact, we come from a state where there's about as many people as in Essex County alone. But the county we come from is very rural and not highly populated, and yet within these, I'm not even sure if there's 100,000 people. There might be by now. But in this county, there's well over 50 churches, which people will just shake their heads like, man, I'm talking about churches of Christ. That doesn't happen anywhere. But someone a long time ago, when I first came to Limestone County, and I was remarking about, man, how many churches? And someone said, yeah, there's 50 churches here, and half of them shouldn't be. And you immediately know why. Because you realize churches fight, people fight. Remember all that we are talking about this morning? James chapter 4 and verses 1 and following. And you, you talk about all the wars and the strifes. And then you realize that just because it's the church of Christ doesn't make it immune to anything that goes on anywhere else. My father is a very spiritual man. He's a very religious man. He does not hardly go to church and hasn't my whole life. He did when he was a teenager. He went to a Baptist church in Decatur, Alabama. And he was very active as a teenager, extremely. And then they had a war. And I don't mean they just had a few people bickering. They had a war. And that war blew people out, as so many church fights and so forth do. And some of them never came back. Is that what we want to be known for? Do we want to fight and argue and contend for my belief, what I think is right, the way I see it, to the point that we blow everybody out. We split. We divide. Is that what we want to be known for? Now, persons say, well, you have to stand for the truth. I agree with that. You do. You have to stand for the truth. But standing for the truth to the point that you split from your brethren ought to be an absolute last resort, and it should never be something that you're happy about, that you're satisfied with. It may happen. It may have to happen. There have been situations, and especially I can read up 
in history, what I would have said, yeah, I would have to do that too. But it's a last resort. When this song, when we sing this song, I wonder, when, do we think about, let's stop the fighting. Teach your children to stop the fighting. That doesn't mean we're not going to disagree. We're human beings. We're going to. That doesn't mean we aren't going to argue and debate about different things. We are going to. It is one way we learn, and that's fine. You see one thing one way, I see one thing another way. We argue that, debate that, discuss that, but we don't fight. And if it gets to the point of fighting, that's when we need to stop and reassess and come back with a better attitude. Teach your children to stop the fighting. Consider all the church problems that exist in the world today. Problems that go on within a congregation among the members. Problems that go on between churches. Problems that go on with people where drudges are held for years and years. Problems that you know that there's a person sitting on one side of the building and would not dare go on the other side because so-and-so sits over there. Problems of, of, you know, where maybe you gather together for a gospel meeting and someone walks through the back door and they see you and they go the other direction because they would not come up to you and shake your hand. Problems where churches do split and fight and 50 years later they are absolutely divided from one another and most of the people don't even know why. They just know that they're against those people and those people know they're against you. There is all of that that goes on. And it's common demand. It's not limited to any group of people, any denomination, any belief or anything else. It's just common to being human. And yet, when you look at this song, this song is reflecting exactly what we were talking about this morning. Where does all of that come from? And where it comes from is what's going on inside you, and what's going on inside you is not right. So, Lord, teach your children to stop the fighting. Are we known for a place, as a place for fighting? Now, my idea is that this church, being in existence of nearly 60 years, has had its fights, disagreements, etc. But I don't think it's what it's known for. And even if sometimes we get caught up in disagreements between ourselves, etc., etc., I believe the impression of people that walk through the back door, at least it's been my experience over the last 14, 15 years, it's been my experience when you talk to those people, the impression is really good. And what those people come away with is, this is not a place for fighting. It is a place of peace. It is a place of unity. And that draws people. And so, in an overall sense, and I'm not saying we're perfect, because our good Lord knows I'm not, and neither is anyone else. But we're not doing that bad of a job. And if we continue to focus on what God wants us to do as a church, then we will continue to be, I believe, what He wants us to be. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. What identifies the church of Christ? What do people know us for? Well, I'd say one of the things certainly that identifies us is the fact that we believe very strongly. If we look down in verse 4, for example, this is the ones passage, I like to call it. There is one body and one spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit. You are called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, Jesus, obviously, one faith, the faith of the Bible, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And we believe that very strongly, don't we? 
I mean, they're not, we would not say there are many lords. You know, we would not recognize, you know, in this greatest ecumenical sense, we would not recognize that every faith and every God and every everything is equal. We would not say that. And we are known for that. And we are known for being people, we have been historically known for being people who would go to the Bible and, you know, what do you believe? Well, I believe so-and-so. Why do you believe it? Not because I think it, not because I feel it, not because somebody else says it, not because it just seems like it's right, but because in book, chapter, verse, this is what it says. We're known for that. But are we known for the rest of the passage? Or the rest of the story, so to speak? Because look at the passage and how Paul begins. He's thanked God and acknowledged that Jesus is the head of the church and talked about this glory, chapter 3, verse 21. Unto Jesus be glory in the church. And immediately he goes from that, chapter 4 and verse 1, I therefore, the fact that the Lord's church is glorious, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that you walk worthy of the vocation, the calling wherewith you are called. And he goes on to say, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering. Here's the idea of being long tempered, not quick tempered, not short tempered with brethren. Forbearing, which is a word that means to put up with. Because we are human and because we do differ, we need to put up with things out of other people. So forbearing one another, in love, endeavoring. And this word endeavoring means you fight for it. You demand it. This is what you fight for. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Are we known for that? Sure, we may be known for the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but without that, it's meaningless. If we just simply have a bunch of people who are baptized running around saying, I believe in book, chapter, and verse... And I'm a Christian, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then what we do is just fight our, among ourselves, and as we said this morning, bite and devour and consume ourselves, it doesn't mean anything. No, Jesus said it this way, and I'd like for you to go back with me, and this is the passage I was talking about way back when we first learned the song, and it occurred to me. Notice in John 17 in Jesus' prayer. Now, you'll know, probably know the part I'm going to, but in this prayer... If I can get to it. In John 17, Jesus began to talk about his disciples. First of all, he talked about himself and the restoration of his glory and so forth. But I want you to drop down to verse 17 because this is what relates to our theme. Being holy, being sanctified. So Jesus prayed in verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now notice that. Set them apart. And set them apart through your truth. We should be people of the book. That was a mocking phrase that was used 125, 30 years ago about members of the church. Maybe even 150 years ago. But it was a mocking phrase. They are people not of the Lord, but of the book. We should be people of the book. Jesus says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Notice what he goes on, though, to say. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them. Now, I think he means the apostles here in particular. Have I sent them into the world? And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. And likewise, we are taught, and we have been talking about sanctifying ourselves, making ourselves holy, set apart unto God. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified 
through the truth. And I don't just pray for these alone. So this is not just about the apostles. Notice what he says. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So here the apostles were going to be sent out teaching people the word of Jesus Christ, and in turn those people were going to be sanctified through the truth, through the word of truth. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, but notice, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So that's exactly right. Lord, teach your children to stop the fighting. Teach us to be one, to start uniting all as one. Let's get together, loving forever, a sanctuary for you. Notice what Jesus says here. That the world may believe that you have sent me. So you mean, Jesus, that it is going to be so impressive to people. Not just that as individuals, they are set apart to the truth. That's not just what is going to impress people. It may impress people. You live your life a holy life. You live your life according to the Word of God. You are not a hypocrite. That's rare. And people will be impressed with that. But what Jesus says is so impressive is when a group of these people come together and unite and they are one. And it is impressive. It is something that you never cease to be impressed with. You can go almost anywhere on the face of the earth and find people who are disciples of Jesus Christ, who are Christians, and they believe the same thing and they have this same unity. And they will welcome you, and you will be part of them, and they will be part of you. And it is an absolutely amazing, impressive thing. And so Jesus says that the world may believe that you have sent me. And here's why. Because of Jesus, someone who lived 2,000 years ago, who had a philosophy as the world would see it, and sent others out with this philosophy. They killed him, they killed them. But if that philosophy is so powerful, it is still not just converting people, but uniting people, then that's something. There's something different about him. You don't find that, and I challenge you to find that in any other religion. Any other religion that there has ever been will divide and continue to divide, and continue to divide, and continue to divide, because both its philosophy and its originator is flawed. They're human beings. But not Jesus. Yes, he was human, but not just so. The Father sent him. The truth came from God. Notice what he finishes with here. That the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, thou in me. That they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and has loved them as thou hast loved me. Now that's impressive. It makes an impression on people. So consider again, what are we known for? I hope that we are known for being individually a sanctuary of God. When an individual considers my life or considers your life, I would hope 
that if you are a Christian, they would have the idea, you know, that person's different. I mean, they live a different life. They aren't perfect, but they're really trying to be everything God wants them to be. But equally, I would hope that if we are truly a church of Christ, that we would be known for a people, yes, we're human, and yes, we disagree, and that's healthy even. But we're united. We're all one. We have the same mind, we have the same judgment, we have the same goals, we have the same beliefs. And when someone comes in, they see that. That nothing, not my personal feelings, not my personal beliefs, not my personal wants, desires, as we were talking about this morning, nothing is as important as maintaining that unity of the Lord's church. That we will give it up at all costs. We would die to preserve that unity. We would sacrifice our feelings. I've known stories, for example, of churches that split over the most ridiculous things there ever had been. As I've told you before, but it's been a long time, I didn't see this happen, but I know someone who did, who saw a church who wanted to install carpet. And one group of the members wanted red, and one group of the members wanted green. And they would not compromise. And so ultimately what had to happen for every visitor that ever came in for all time past that, at least up until the time I knew about it, they had to walk in and say, why is the right side of your building green and the left side red? Would you like to be known? Would you like to be one having to explain that? Equally, another church that I do know of had to re-roof their building. Now down south, and especially... Seventy-five years ago, it was really common to have tin roofs. I don't know if that was ever up here or not, but you put like aluminum or literally tin on the building. And then these shingles, as we have them today, began to come along. Well, you know, there were older people. I don't want shingles. I like the tin. They had to re-roof the building. And you know what's happened. You know what's coming. How would you like to be bringing someone to visit your congregation, a person looking up at the roof saying, why is one half of your building tin and the other one shingles? And the only answer you can give is because it was more important to continue the fight than it was to be able to bring a person into a unified, united, loving congregation. That's why, you know, if someone comes in here and says... Let's take this part of the Bible and throw it out. I'll fight you on that. And if, if I have to, I'll divide from you over that. Because this is the Word of God. But if you want a carpet green or red or you want shingles or tin, you want to paint the building, whatever, I don't care. I mean, I may have an opinion. I'm generally a very opinionated person. And I have an opinion about everything. But it's not important. And it certainly is not as important as what God wants. And what God wants is the unity. Listen to one more passage with me. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, you know, you people have one Lord, Jesus Christ. And then immediately he goes into saying this in verse 10. And the first thing he says to them, Now I beg you, brethren, verse 10, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The person says, is that possible? Of course it's possible. That doesn't mean that one person can't like the Mets and another the Braves. We ain't talking about that. We're talking about the things that are important. We're talking about the things that have to do with the Word of God. Can people be perfectly united, joined together in the same mind and judgment? The same mind. What is the same mind? Jesus is Lord. Everything Jesus says is 100% important. I'm not. Can we be joined together in that? The same judgment. Every decision we make, let us make it according to what the Bible says. We may not see it the same way. Let's talk about it and discuss it as brethren who love each other. Let's discuss it until perhaps we can reach the same decision. But not fight. Not divide. Not become another one of those in an endless stream of groups of people who couldn't get along and couldn't love their Lord enough to reach the same mind and same judgment. And that's what Paul says here to these people. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them who are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among them. And there shouldn't be. There should not be that kind of contention. And the word that's used there, the idea of arguing and fussing and fighting and hating, that should never be between two Christians. It's totally out of place. So, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Lord, teach your children to stop the fight. And if you'll notice, there are some additional lyrics, and I copied, I think I copied them down for you. Um, but if you'll read the rest of it with me, and let's think about it just for a moment before we close. You were the one, Lord. Now, this part you'll see in your song. You were, you were the one, Lord, who sent the Savior, heart and soul, Lord, for our land. Now, notice the point here. It is you, Lord, who knows our weakness, but you refine us with your hand. Now, we leave it there, but there are some additional lyrics in the original song, and I want to read them to you, and I, I can't remember if I copied them on your sheet or not. But what it goes on to say is, lead me on, Lord, from temptation. Because, you see, there is a temptation. There's a temptation for me to not clean up my life and have all the filthiness and everything else that would keep me, personally, from being a sanctuary. And there is the temptation to fight and argue and so forth to the point that we are not the sanctuary of the Lord. So lead me on, Lord, from temptation. Purify me, notice, from within. Fill my heart. With your Holy Spirit. I love that. I wish it were in our lyrics. But I love that because the writer did not choose to say, fill my mind with your spirit. When you fill your mind, it's just words. You can quote it. You know what it says. It's words. But when it fills your heart, you live it. And that's what's different. We can talk about unity. We can say the words. We can quote let us all be one, as Jesus said in John 17, or be of the same mind and judgment, 1 Corinthians 1. We can say it, but if it fills our heart, we live it. If it fills our heart, there will be no red carpet on one side, green on the other. 
Because we will strive, if you will, fight for the unity. And if it comes down to a group of people having to say to another group of people, if it's that important to you to have green carpet, then far be it from me to continue fighting about something that just doesn't matter. Fill my heart, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Take away all my sins. Let me be a living sanctuary for you. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, you'll confess that He is, you're willing to to repent, to change your life and live your life just as the Lord would have you to live it. And tonight you'll be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. Have them all washed away. Begin your life brand new in Jesus Christ. Or if you're here and you look at your life and you say, I'm one of those baptized people, but all too often my weaknesses get in the way. I'd like to ask for the prayers of the people here. Won't you please come? Father, stand and sing.